last uh, last Sunday, Chisho talked about uh, the calamity, uh, and by calamity, she's <clears throat> she means the earth changes that we're facing as a result of um, our release of carbon into the atmosphere. And so I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna continue with that. Uh, in, in preparing a talk, I have to go with what's alive in me, and I have been paying attention to this, um, you know, kind of daily for a long time. So <clears throat> part of it is going to be like doom and gloom, uh, but not all of it. So it's going to be kind of a bad news, good news talk. And I'm going to start with some of the bad news. No matter what we do now, climate changes are making large parts of the planet uninhabitable. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we're talking about temperature that people just cannot withstand um, in some, some areas. And it seems like that uh, uh, will only increase in the future. I've been in, uh, in grief about human impact on ecosystems for some decades. We knew about this danger back in the 60s. Now it's right in our face way quicker than I ever imagined. I'm scared for my grandchildren and all the people I know who will be caught in the chaos of the changes. I weep for the trees, animals, and landscapes that I love and that will not survive. I feel deeply ashamed of the destructiveness and cruelty of human impact on the other forms of life. I'm afraid of the tsunami of suffering that we face as large-scale human desperation and die-offs accelerate. I grieve losing the beautiful elaborations of human imagination and artifice that are expressions of our best human nature. Now, here we sit, still well-fed and well-dressed, on the upper deck of the Titanic, watching as we approach the iceberg gradually beginning to get our minds around it. This is no longer a potential danger on a radar screen. This iceberg is in plain sight and dead ahead. In fact, the impact has already begun and we're just beginning to feel the crunch and shudder of collision. And that crunch and that shudder is awakening us to the reality of our situation. It's a critical juncture in our social and ecological evolution. Indeed, it's not even a juncture, for there is no hope of avoiding or turning aside from the calamity. I know there's an argument about that. There are some who think that a technological solution will appear that will keep most of the planet livable. May it be so. But meanwhile, we can see what is happening. And our best response 
may just be to ameliorate or slow down the pace of the destruction uh, of, of the loss of planetary life systems, but too many tipping points have been passed to uh, avoid it. What true thing can I possibly say to you, my fellow passengers? What can we say to each other? I love you. I grieve your suffering. I celebrate your beauty or your gift or whatever special thing there is about you that you bring, that you present. I'm grateful for this time with you. Jesus told the parable of the burning house in the Lotus Sutra, one of the foundational texts of our lineage of Buddhism. A father sees that his house is on fire and his children are still playing happily inside. He's afraid for them and he's challenged to persuade them to leave. They seem heedless to the danger. Finally, he bribes them by uh, saying, Kids, I have three carts full of toys for you out here. Come outside and play with them. So their kids run outside. They don't see the carts and say, where are the three carts? Instead, the man gives them one big cart drawn by a white ox. It's not full of toys, but it successfully takes the children away from the burning house. I think that big ox cart, that large vehicle, may represent the Mahayana doctrine of compassion for all beings, which is reflected today in the vows that we recite together often. I mention this because I believe that this way of thinking is valuable for us in this situation. Our house is almost literally burning. That is the urgency of the situation. We have been very slow to take it seriously. Some of you might remember Barry Commoner. He was a cellular biologist who ran for president against Ronald Reagan in 1980. I voted for him. <laughs> <laughs> the book, I couldn't imagine that Ronald Reagan would have been reelected after declaring, if you've seen one redwood tree, you've seen them all. But he was, <laughs> to my chagrin. Uh, <clears throat> okay, the book he wrote, uh, Barry Commoner, was the closing circle about the dangers of disregarding the ecological processes of nature. How did we let it get so late? Even those of us who saw the danger decades ago failed to communicate the urgency of the situation as the changes were happening so gradually, we didn't feel the impact. So much inertia behind maintaining the status quo, like trying to turn a huge steel ocean liner. Those who saw the dangerous tra trajectory we are on and tried to sound an alarm were drowned out by spokesmen for the status quo, aided by our own desire for a feeling of safety and familiarity. 
For 50 years, scientists have realized the danger, but it was kept in the background. Bill McKibben tried to alert people. He's going to make a presentation at Bioneers in October, and he is still on the case, um, brilliant and articulate. <clears throat> Al Gore tried to alert people. Scientists talked to each other and formed the UN uh, Intergovernmental uh, Panel on uh, Climate Change to collect information for policy makers. For a long time, their warnings were dismissed or ignored. The possible threat seemed very remote, and there was some kind of general social agreement not to burden each other with bad news. And of course, the oil companies, who knew the facts from their own investigations, tried to deny and cast doubt on the science to maintain their destructive but profitable activities. Now, Super hurricanes, glacial melting, heat waves, fires, floods, and other extreme weather events have begun to change all that. It's in our face, and it will not be denied. This is a crisis clearly, clearly caused by human activity. However, if all humans died at once and carbon emissions from human activity fell to zero tomorrow, the earth changes we have put in place already would continue to devastate the other forms of life. Most of the carbon we have put into the atmosphere has been absorbed into the oceans where it is dramatically changing ocean chemistry that affects not just the climate, but the entire food chain of the planet. None of us are innocent. None of us are safe. That's the bad news. Hurricane Katrina may have been a turning point in public awareness of the growing earth changes. Wow, this is happening, and it's right in our face, and it's a big deal. As awareness grows, we want to know what can we do. Our future will be vastly different than we imagined 10 years ago. My granddaughters, age three and seven, what will their lives be like? All the things that we consider normal, choosing a school, starting a career, planning a family, owning a home, all are suddenly fantasy-like. It's hard to imagine that they will be thinking about what school to apply to when most people around them are worried about daily survival, food, shelter, safety, likely including their grandparents. I have to wonder if they will become climate refugees like millions of humans worldwide, even before they are adults. I have to wonder when we will become climate refugees, for it seems likely that it will be true for all of us if we live long enough. It seems the most likely cause here in Sonoma County will be drought and fire, as it has already been for many of those burned out in the past two years who could not afford to rebuild and could not afford the high rents following the housing shortage. Maybe it will be drought and famine, like El Salvador right now, where the farmers' corn crops are failing for the third year and coffee plantations are dying 
and some and people are leaving trying to find some place that they can make a life. The almost unspoken stories that we just normally tell ourselves no longer fit with the facts before us. Technology will not save us. Religion will not save us. Wealth will not save us. Colonies on Mars or the moon will not save us. As we gradually give up our denial and face the reality of the changes before us, we want to know what we can do. So I, I want to switch from the gloom and doom song and uh, make some offering in this talk of things that will be helpful and will be allies for us. Mainly, it's that we are not uh, only heirs of culture, but we are creators of it. And the crisis we are in is partly a cultural one uh, created by the way we think. And we can help to change those old stories that got us here uh, into ones that will serve us. I believe that as Buddhists, we have a special contribution to offer based on our practice of self-inquiry and on our understanding of interdependence and impermanence. More on that later. <clears throat> um, Modern humans are a very young species, a few hundred thousand years old at most. In some places, we were able to live for thousands of years in relative balance with the other forms of life. Indians have lived in California about 19,000 years. Most indigenous people have stories of a time when they could speak with the other animals and lived with them as family. At some point, we lost that family feeling. What happened? How long have we felt so uh, superior this way? Since we learned to hunt with sticks and fire and the other animals stopped speaking to us? Since we learned to connect, control other animals and choose their mates for them, gradually breeding them to slavery, becoming slave herders ourselves in the process? Was this separation an inevitable result of our hyperactive nervous system and self-awareness? Since a vindictive Middle Eastern tribal deity cast us out of his garden for disobedience? Since we invented the alphabet and symbols became more important than feelings and sensations? However it happened, our, in our loneliness, we began telling ourselves that we are so special that unlike the other animals, we are made of spirit favored by God himself and will live forever. We became like narcissistic teenagers with an exaggerated sense of entitlement and very poor impulse control. What could possibly go wrong? Now, we're facing a great collective as well as personal reckoning. We have seriously overshot the carrying capacity of the planet and have so damaged the intricate systems that supply us with food, water, and air that there seemed to be no way that we may avoid a massive die-off of humans as well as the other forms of life 
that have been our planetary companions for all of our history here. But let me throw you some comfort. We are no worse off now than we've ever been. Things are exactly as impermanent now as they were 50 years ago or 50 million years ago. Usually, changes don't happen so fast, and we adjust to them more gradually. Not always, though. There have been meteor impacts in, in, in individual people's lives. The changes happen very suddenly, often. As old stories are loosened, we're able to replace them with more accurate ones that give truer meaning to our lives and help us deal more effectively with our circumstances. So I want to think about some elements of what that new story, those new stories might be like. The only way that I can comprehend this long emergency in my mind and body is to feel it from the perspective of all beings, large and small, animate and inanimate, past, present, and future. And I want that to be part of the new story. It means seeing it from a geological or cosmological perspective, where these kinds of changes are part of our experience. This change of story is helpful for our confidence. We are stardust, after all. And we've been changing and rearranging for something like 14 billion years, sometimes gradually, sometimes suddenly. We sit here now an assemblage of parts, a skin bag on a bony armature covering various types of tissues and fluids animated by the slow, steady fire of metabolism. Within this bag are a multitude of cooperative microorganisms, chemical and electrical networks that register feelings, perceptions, impulses, and consciousness. Complex, kind of fragile, amazingly resilient, and I have to say beautiful. <laughs> How long can we hold a large perspective until the immediate personal impact is too great? Yet, we can do it at this moment. And at this one. We have always been subject to the disassembly and dispersal of these elements that we call ourselves in death, and the gathering up and this new assembly that we call birth. Birth and death are clearly not isolated events, but a continuous process around us and within us of which we have always been a part. Don't imagine that trees stones, or even atomic particles have no consciousness just because they don't have a nervous system or think like humans. Only a fish knows a fish's heart, our great teacher Dogen said. The more we know about molecular organization and process, the more complexity is revealed. When I identify with all beings, <clears throat> I know that we beings 
have been through these kinds of changes many times and will continue to change and rearrange and go on to further adventures. The more we know about cosmology, the more complexity is revealed. We can extrapolate backwards from the way the universe is expanding at present to a time when it was all together as a unity. The Big Bang idea, when one became many. I prefer to think of it as a big whoosh, <laughs> but there it is. Um, we, uh, we were there together, and if we choose, we can use the story of that time to strengthen our commitment to solidarity through our differences today. I can think about and even feel remnants of that unity as I sit under an oak tree, looking up and realize that each leaf is unique. Like snowflakes, no two are alike. Under an electron microscope, no bacteria are alike. That seems to be a, a, a major theme throughout nature. Now, you would think that if we were, uh, if we were in charge, we would make them all identical. It's so much easier to produce that way, and we would make things in straight lines rather than, than all this uniqueness, all this diversity. But no, this is this seems to be the way nature works. One of the people in our outdoor sitting group noticed that each breeze that passes through the foliage of the tree that he was sitting under is unique, and it rustles the leaves in a way that has never happened exactly that way before. Why do I take such comfort from that? I don't know, but there's, there's something uh, precious about it. Um, <clears throat> okay. We are fluid like water. We can see each other as unique drops, discrete drops, but we are all part of one ocean, and we change and rearrange, and we go back, and we dissolve and, and reconstitute. This is a creation story that, to me, seems to accord with reality as I see it, and it brings me great comfort. It's the harmony of difference and sameness. The, the unique and the uh, singular. <clears throat> when applied to Homo sapiens, it describes our diversity and our familiarity. Face it, we are not the center of the universe. The most important change of story we need is to give up that terrible burden, that terrible loneliness. It's not all about us. I so love being matter in a material world. Matter itself is lively and miraculous beyond comprehension. Do I need something more that I would call spirit? Um, but being matter, my family is all around as well as within me. Waking up to the calamity we face 
the old stories are shaken and loosened, and we may see new possibilities. If we step into our power as makers of culture, we can adopt stories that better serve us, that accord with what we know of actual reality, and that tend toward the benefit of all beings, including our planet Earth. In the midst of this horrible unraveling, An example of that that really struck me was when the teenagers of the Sunrise Movement went to Nancy Pelosi's office and tried to talk her into uh, endorsing the Green New Deal. And Nancy Pelosi said, you, you can't do that. And they said, oh, yes, we can. <laughs> okay, whether they will or not. Thank you, Sunrise um, teenagers, uh, for, for bringing a new story. As thoughtful beings, our way of thinking greatly influences our activity and our way of interacting with our surroundings. We've told ourselves stories about the laws of nature that are mechanical and fatalistic. We don't have to diverge too far from a scientific understanding to see them rather as customs of nature rather than laws, to allow for the possibility of the random, the chaotic, and the unexpected. So when, when we put our foot down, usually the earth is there to receive it and to support us. But there's no law that it must be. So if we just carry with us that, that little doubt, it allows us to be grateful for, that the earth does support our next footstep and receive us. And that changes our whole, our heart. <clears throat> we benefit from seeing more of the everyday miracles that bring us joy. The flowers on the altar, the status. If you look at them closely, it's, they're incredible. You know, you, you couldn't make up something like that, those blossoms. And here they are. Um, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I was, um, my wife and I sleep outside during um, a lot of the year when it's not raining. And um, at night, I usually have to get up and pee somewhere and uh, out in the grass somewhere. And I was doing that uh, the other night. It was, uh, it must have been uh, just before dawn. Uh, it, it was still dark, but there was a little bit of light. And I went up to pee by the garden fence, and suddenly there was this movement, and uh, a fairly quick movement, and I was um, uh, surprised, but I was busy, so I, <laughs> I, uh, so I, I just stayed there. And, and this, what I recognized finally, is a, um, a small skunk ran up and, and, and was sniffing right at the, right at the stream there. It was, it was a little embarrassing. 
and um, and and he jumped around a little bit and then ran back down the garden fence, and I had shown my flashlight down there, and there were two other ones that looked like siblings, and the three of them. Uh, they're small, but they had big hair. I mean, it was it was very fuzzy and frothy and wavy in the uh, as they. It seemed like they were dancing uh, or cavorting, kind of like kittens do. And I distinctly got the impression that they were teenagers. Um, but it was it was such a. Um, a magical moment to me that it's the memory of it is sufficient to get me through a whole lot of doom and gloom. And this is happening right now. You know, okay, we're crunching into the iceberg, but still the skunks are still doing their their fairy angel dance uh, for us, and sometimes we get in on it. So Let's see. The sweetness of the moment that you do not take for granted. I was totally surprised by this. I, I didn't expect it. I, I, I didn't take it for granted that anything like that would happen. Uh, one of the phrases that we use a lot is beginner's mind as being... Uh, you know, kind of what Zen is about, is finding this uh, new way, uh, this more open way of seeing things. So um, it's sort of like experiencing things the way a baby might. Well, beginner's mind will support us to live a joyous life, a life of praise and gratitude that's a natural antidote to fear and a major ally in facing this daily danger. New, new story, new idea. Another ally is grief. <clears throat> grief is appropriate when whales and polar bears are starving and honeybees are in decline. It keeps us real so that we don't float off into some transcendent fantasy or uh, into denial. We are one people. We are all composed from the surface materials of planet Earth. We are all Mother Earth's children, and so every grief at last is a collective grief, and to feel it gives us the gift of connection and solidarity. The grief in El Paso, in Dayton, and in Mississippi is our grief. When my son was dying of leukemia treatments, I grieved with the parents of Palestinian children who were being killed in attacks on, on Gaza that were happening at the time. And, and it felt like, you know, a father's grief at the loss of a child is common and uh, in, in that we were together in that. 
We grieve the bleached coral beds, the starving whales and polar bears, the salmon, the empty monarch butterfly groves, the burning forests. We grieve the loss of the social contract shredded by corporate greed and a corrupt political system. We grieve the loss of our sense of agency when landowners can poison the soil with chemicals and restrict the movement of wildlife that should be our common heritage. We grieve our children cut down by greed, madness, by empire. What can we hope for? Well, there are people who, who um, are really trying to offer us hope, and I hope some of their schemes work, but I don't believe that it's very helpful in this situation. It's like whistling in the wind, expecting some possible external intervention. That's not to say that we are hopeless, but that we are in a crisis that has already irrevocably changed the planet with every indication that the changes will continue to intensify. To act now based on some expected result is to invite despair and the loss of motivation to do the right thing because it is true and right in itself. Think, think of us as in a hospice situation for the earth. In this situation, we are both the patient and the caregiver. The mission of hospice care is basically to relieve suffering and support dignity and compassion in the dying process. It does not depend on hope that the patient may somehow recover. Can we forego hope without becoming paralyzed with despair? I think so. Hospice workers practice this every day with skill, heart, and, and integrity. Can we do that for each other and for the other forms of life? I think we can. Every one of us is involved in the dying process. Awareness of our mortality is also an ally in negotiating life on the edge of calamity. It may increase our feeling of vulnerability, but it also increases our feeling of love, connection, and human solidarity. As Buddhists, we understand the world is impermanent. It's one of our foundational observations. Still, we often are surprised and wake up to realize that we had forgotten and had been again taking health and life for granted. Each of us must personally decide what we can do for the planet. For me, it means to study about it, talk about it uh, <clears throat> in as true, real, <clears throat> and compassionate a way as I can. It means what I can do, do to do what I can to change the culture of human supremacy and to restore a mutual relationship with nature. It means to try to interact with all the other forms of life based on the precepts of the Bodhisattva concern for mutual benefit.
I want to leave you with a Mary Oliver poem called The Place I Want to Get Back To. The place I want to get back to is where in the pine woods, in the moments between the darkness and the first light, two deer came walking down the hill. And when they saw me, they said to each other, okay, this one is okay. Let's see who she is and why she is sitting on the ground like that, so quiet, as if asleep or in a dream, but anyway, harmless. And so they, came, so they come on their slender legs and gazed upon me, not unlike the way I go out to the dunes and look and look and look into the faces of the flowers. And then one of them leaned forward and nuzzled my hand. And what can my life bring me that could exceed that brief moment? For 20 years, I have gone every day to the same woods, not waiting exactly, just lingering. Such gifts bestowed cannot be repeated. If you want to talk about this, come to visit. I live in the house near the corner, which I have named Gratitude. So I feel like grief is our ally because it keeps it real, and that gratitude is our ally because it gives us the strength to... Um, to be here with it.